Hello, my name is Adam Vinson. And I'm Anand Kalukin. You're listening to State of the Pod. With climate change causing disastrous effects for both humans as well as the natural world, experts and policymakers have floated many potential solutions. Many of these solutions are focused on mitigation. Reducing carbon emissions, for example, is a major goal for many scientists. However, this is easier said than done. No matter how you slice it, reducing emissions to a substantial extent will necessitate large societal and economic investments. We will need to build an entirely new energy infrastructure that relies on solar energy rather than fossil fuels. Why is such a drastic change necessary? Even under best-case scenarios, keeping temperature rise under an average of 2 degrees Celsius from the start of the Industrial Revolution will be next to impossible. We have already hit 1.1 degrees of average warming. Even if we cut our emissions extensively, the carbon dioxide present in the atmosphere could still push us over the edge. Currently, there is an over 50% increase of CO2 in the atmosphere from a baseline of around 280 ppm or parts per million to 415 ppm. Renewable energy is probably the most promising climate change mitigation strategy. It relies on technology which has already been developed. It gets right to the root of the problem by offering an alternative means of generating energy that does not result in carbon emissions. Furthermore, renewable energy is palatable on the corporate and national levels. There are incentives for these entities to invest in renewables since they facilitate energy independence. While renewables are far from a panacea, since it is expensive to build up renewable infrastructure and there are environmental costs to manufacturing them as well, they still have the potential to completely obviate the need for fossil fuels. Of the many renewable energy options, solar is perhaps the most likely to succeed. The sun provides us with unimaginable amounts of energy. One hour of energy from the sun striking the Earth's surface could power human civilization for a year. If we can tap into this resource, we can satiate not only our current energy needs, but our future needs as well. A major difficulty with photovoltaic panels or as you might more commonly know them as, solar panels, is that they take up a lot of land. It takes roughly 20 solar panels to power a house. To power the entire United States, it would take over 21,000 square miles of solar panels. An important question is, supposing we had the resources to manufacture all of these panels and install them, where would we put them? At first, this may not seem to be much of a problem. You might ask, Why not put all of our solar panels in a remote, uninhabited area, like a desert? However, a major problem with deserts is that they have temperatures so hot they can interfere with panel efficiency. It would be extremely expensive to install modified panels that can deal with harsh desert conditions. Another challenge is that remote locations are by definition far away from heavily inhabited areas. The energy loss of transporting solar energy to these locations would be significant. At worst, Loss from long-distance energy transport can be up to 10%. At best, loss rates can be reduced to 3% per 1,000 kilometers, which would still mean a massive power reduction. A large solar installation in the desert would also need to store energy in batteries 
so that there is no outage if weather conditions change. However, energy storage is an especially big challenge with solar energy. There are four types of battery used to store solar. Lead acid, lithium ion, nickel cadmium, and flow. Lead acid batteries are widespread but have low energy density and a limited lifespan. Lithium ion batteries are more modern and have improvements in efficiency and energy density but come at a higher cost. Moreover, both lithium ion and nickel cadmium batteries use toxic metals that must be disposed of carefully. Finally, flow batteries suffer from the flaw of being extremely space inefficient. All in all, a distributed grid with generation sites located close to electricity is ideal because it provides the most flexibility while reducing transportation cost loss. Moreover, states and localities may have individual decarbonization plans. To satisfy this, they will need to establish their own renewable grids. For example, take the plan created by the New York State Climate Action Council. The plan is one of the most ambitious in the country. According to its website, it outlines the actions needed for New York to achieve 70% renewable energy by 2030, 100% zero emission electricity by 2040, a 40% reduction in statewide greenhouse gas emissions from 1990 levels by 2030, an 85% reduction from 1990 levels by 2050, and net zero emissions statewide by 2050. Among the goals of the project are to establish clean and reliable electric power through solar, wind, and other renewables, combined with energy storage to help consumer vulnerability to fossil fuel disruptions and price volatility. Additionally, it calls for significant growth in jobs within green industries, with union labor as the backbone of the state's clean energy economy, which will help create family-sustaining jobs and wage gains across the economy and in every corner of the state. Clearly, to achieve these ambitious goals, New York cannot outsource its renewable energy to another location. But New York is a populous state, with land devoted to crucial things like housing, farming, industry, etc. Where is there room for solar energy? To learn more about solar energy, land use, and more, we talked to three regional experts of renewable energy usage and sustainable development. Henry Williams is a PhD student in the Sibley School of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering. He is currently researching solar development and two months ago published a paper in Applied Energy titled The Potential for Agrivoltaics to Enhance Solar Farm Cooling. To hear Henry say it. So agrivoltaics is the co-location of solar energy and agricultural practices or agricultural production. And that can encompass a few different things. Um, it's sort of a, a nascent practice, so its definition is not set in stone. Um, but for the most part, people consider agrivoltaics to include uh, three types of agricultural activity. Uh, the first is food, pr food production. So that's your typical, um, you know, you're, you're growing crops under the solar panels and around the solar panels. The second would be any kind of animal grazing. So instead of the developer um, using traditional mowing to uh, manage vegetation, they might have sheep or um, sometimes even cattle um, graze under the panels to control the vegetation. And that's still considered you know, agricultural activity. And then the third is um, facilitating pollinator habitats. So pollinators can benefit nearby agriculture. Um, and so that's you know, considered an, an agricultural 
production method. So the pollinator habitats, the, the developer would simply um, grow uh, pollinator-friendly um, vegetation underneath the panels. So you can, you know, that, that's kind of a, I would say, low-hanging fruit for agrivoltaics. Um, animal grazing is a bit more challenging, but it, it can be, um, uh, it can be incorporated in a traditional solar site. You can have sheep grazing, for example. There's a site just outside of Cornell, uh, which has some research on sheep grazing. But you have, um, there's a, a big challenge with uh, food production. Um, and that's where our research mostly can benefit um, and can inform developers and, and site management practices because you actually have to, in a lot of cases, you might have to change the um, site design to uh, accommodate for different food production. To summarize, agrivoltaics is when the same land is used for both agriculture and solar energy. This can be beneficial, especially for shade-grown crops. However, it is not just the plants that benefit. The solar panels also get something out of it, too. This was the focus of Henry's study. Um, so in my study, I was interested in showing how um, potentially growing crops under panels can actually benefit the panels themselves. And that's where you can see some of the benefits for the developers, as well as agriculture. So um, the, the site was um, that, that we kind of used as the base design and, and the validation for the study is based in Ontario, Canada. And um, we used that site because they had extensive data on solar panel temperature. And the reason that we're interested in the temperature is because the uh, solar panels, they operate at peak efficiency around 25 degrees Celsius. Anything higher than that, then they're not operating at peak efficiency. Um, the, the efficiency decreases as the temperature increases above 25 degrees Celsius. And um, this is, you know, a problem even in regions like Canada or, or New York where it's a more moderate climate. Um, in the summertime, the panel temperatures can reach 50, 60 degrees Celsius. Um, but what we've shown in, in the study is that um, as you increase the panel height, which would be a design element to incorporate for agrivoltaics, um, you get into uh, a, um, a higher wind speed because of the atmospheric boundary layer from the wind, and that in improves the uh, cooling from increased convection. So that's one element. Um, another element is when you compare it to um, like bare soil, agrivoltaics, which could incorporate some, um, some high reflectivity crops, can actually reduce panel temperature um, by reducing the amount of heat emitted from the ground. As you increase the reflectivity of the ground, more radiation is reflected um, and less is emitted as heat. And so that, uh, that is another component of the solar panel cooling. The third is called evapotranspiration. So evapotranspiration is the combination of transpiration um, from crops and evaporation from the soil. And um, certain crops have different um, characteristics when it comes to evapotranspiration. Um, but compared to bare soil, again, evapotranspiration can improve uh, the cooling because as the um, water from the soil and from the plants um, evaporates, that's taking latent heat from the atmosphere. And so what you're doing is essentially removing heat uh, from beneath the panels and cooling them above. Next, we interviewed David Kay. 
David Kay is a senior extension associate in the Department of Global Development at the Cornell College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, where he serves as department extension leader. While he was trained as an economist, David conducts research, outreach, and training with regards to sustainable development in both the local and global contexts. What are your thoughts overall on agrivoltaics? Well, I think it's a very fascinating, very promising topic. Um, it kind of depends a little on how it gets defined. I will say I'm on a, a New York State Energy Research and Development Authority uh, advisory committee, which is trying to think about what the future of agrivoltaics is in New York State and how it should be incentivized or disincentivized in various ways. Um, you know, from a research perspective, as you know, uh, sort of an academic researcher, I would say we only know, we don't know nearly enough uh, about it. It's very new, and particularly, uh, particularly at scale, uh, we don't know nearly enough to make like clear recommendations to either policymakers or landowners about what they should be doing. Uh, uh, it, you know, we have some insights and there's a growing body of literature, but insofar as we're in the business of providing research-based information through our extension system, we're just at the beginning of a process that we need to advance as rapidly as possible. And there's a lot of, uh, a growing degree of investment and, and work to build our knowledge base, particularly uh, through DOE and, and other, you know, through national and to some degree through state uh, funding sources. There's a coordinated effort to really try and learn as much as we can, as fast as we can about the potential for this. I will say that, you know, what we see on the ground is already uh, in many cases is the success, at least at certain scales, and by scales I mean sizes of uh, solar facilities relatively so far in the smaller scale. Um, we've seen the success of sheep grazing in particular as a way of managing solar landscapes. Now, is it not, you know, at the, the answer to your question also depends on like how do you define what agriculture is and how does the government define what agriculture is and what are the implications of that. So, for example, um, Sheep grazing is a kind of commodity, you know, with wool and meat potentially. Uh, how about pollination, pollinators, crops, you know, um, that might have some implication for agriculture. It might, uh, you know, people who uh, sell honey uh, might benefit from that. So that some people will consider that agriculture. Some people want to not consider it mainstream agriculture. Um, um, what about other animals? What about, you know, does it have to be, what about commodity crops? What about field crops, you know? So depending on how broad your definition of agriculture is, there is a, um, you know, there can be a difference of opinion about, um, about how compatible uh, different kinds of agriculture are. And again, I, I want to emphasize over and over again that for example, in New York State, we have essentially next to no very large-scale 
facilities that have already, solar facilities that have already been developed that we can sort of look at and say, historically, this is what happened on those sites. There's a lot being proposed. There is a reasonable amount of small-scale solar, which is, by small-scale, I mean something like five megawatts or less. But what we're talking about now in trying to meet the state's climate goals is we're seeing dozens and dozens of proposals for uh, facilities on the order of, you know, hundreds to thousands of acres. So Ithaca in New York uh, passing a lot of legislation recently on the topic of decarbonization. Do you think that uh, they will be able to achieve their decarbonization goals? Well, I'll, I'll take, uh, I think if anybody uh, is honest about, about that, you know, so, the, so what I like to say about are we going to be able to achieve our decarbonization goals, like, if this were not be, being driven by the science that says, you know, essentially the mitigation science, that says, hey, we really need to do something about carbon emissions and do it quickly, uh, we would be, we would have, um, you know, I'd be very optimistic about uh, achieving our goals. And what I'm trying to say is over a, the time periods that in historically we've shifted from one source of energy to another like from wood to coal from coal to oil you know all that kind of stuff so but that's measured in you know many decades you know trying to do this quickly is no question i think everybody would agree the city of ithaca the state of new york the world it's a very challenging task so are we going to make it you know within a few years uh within a decade within 2040 are we going to make those specific targets? I would say, any, you know, it would, everybody would agree it would be a challenge. I do think it's feasible to do it. I don't think we need new technology to do it. But what we do need to do, which is what I spend most of my time researching on, is changing human systems, uh, you know, socio-technical systems, as we like to call them, of how... You know, of a lot of different interacting systems ranging from labor force, uh, you know, who's going to do all the installations of all the heat pumps, for example, uh, to uh, financial systems about where's all the money going to go come from to finance investments in these kinds of things, to policy systems, where does legislation really need to change, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, even though we have, I would say, at both federal and state level, better frameworks in place uh, for meeting a lot of these goals than we did before. A lot is going to depend on our capacity as a society to achieve a certain amount of consensus about ways to move forward that enables us to move uh, on these kinds of timescales. We have learned about both the scientific and policy aspects of decarbonization through agrivoltaics and other means. To learn more about economic considerations, we interviewed Kevin Campbell, a director of development at the firm EDF Renewables. Campbell is also chair of the siting committee at Alliance for Clean Energy New York. He has worked on numerous large-scale renewable energy development projects, 
and encourages the use of agrivoltaics that incorporate sheep grazing. So what might motivate a landowner to develop renewables on their land as opposed to some other use of the land like you know, agriculture or some other industrial use, for instance. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different factors. I mean, first of all, um, you know, hosting solar is not for everyone, uh, unlike uh, hosting wind turbine where uh, the bulk of your land can continue in agriculture if, if that's how your land is being utilized. Uh, in solar, especially for the larger projects where we like to use um, a significant portion of landowners' uh, land, you know, the, for them, the decision is um, do they want to continue farming their land or do they want to go into solar? Other farmers who may be larger farmers uh, may have a portion of their land signed up for solar and continue farming the rest of their land. So I, I think there's a lot of benefits for landowners. Uh, number one, we all know that farmers have been struggling for for years now, so the, the fact they can earn a long term guaranteed revenue stream from solar uh, to help reinvest in the rest of their businesses and to help support their families going forward is is important for many. Um, the other benefit is solar can help preserve farmlands. So there's very strict criteria we have to meet during construction, operation, construction, um, decommissioning, so that these projects can um, go back into farming after the site is decommissioned. And while the project is operating, uh, typically the soils can be improved over time uh, because they're at rest. Sometimes we sometimes we can have uh, sheep grazing or different things grazing on site that will help renutrify the soils. Um, but really, it's it's a preservation of of farmland too, and I think that has a big value. And there's also a lot of benefits that can come to the communities, whether it's all the jobs created during construction that really help bring a lot of money into local community, especially the hospitality sector. Uh, we negotiate, um, you know, tax payments with the local communities and host community agreements that bring a lot more revenues and new revenues to the school districts, the counties and the towns. Um, you know, we help to provide for local organizations and community um, events through sponsorships and other ways. Um, you know, we'll sponsor, um, we'll provide scholarships for uh, kids graduating from high school, for example. So really through conversations and discussions with the landowners and their communities, we can really find what the the win-wins are for us and the communities by bringing our, our projects into um, into their places. Okay, great. And speaking directly about solar specifically, um, a lot of our episode is focused on the concept of agrivoltaics, and you know we just want to know what your thoughts are on that and how your firm advocates for it. Yeah, agrivoltaics is something that's that's very very important to me. Uh, we've been at least you know I've been talking about and, and I've been a big proponent of agrivoltaics for almost seven, eight years now. Uh, and, and just maybe to kick it off with a bit of a story, um, you know, there's a lot to be said about solar using farmland and, and you know, using significant amount of farmland in, in some cases. Um, the very first project uh, EDF Renewables did was near Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. 
uh, back in 2009. Uh, it was a 23.4 megawatt solar facility that's, you know, it's on the smaller scale of things nowadays, but when it was built, it was the largest solar facility in North America. And, um, you know, we grow vegetation under the panels because it's very important for stormwater management to have vegetation growing under panel uh, to manage the water that's on site. And in 2017, uh, there's a sheep farmer down the road who had 100 ewes and they needed to grow their business to at least 500 ewes in order to have a, a successful uh, business that they could self-sustain on their sheep alone. And, you know, land in the area is very expensive to rent or buy and they couldn't afford to do that. So they knocked on our door and asked us if they could graze the vegetation under our panels. And um, we did a, a pilot with them. It was very successful. Uh, so the following year, 2018, we had a, a complete vegetation management contract with them that they were uh, going to be hired instead of hiring a landscaper or lawn mowing company to keep the vegetation uh, to keep the vegetation low because obviously we don't want it to grow higher than, than the panels because then it casts a shadow and we lose production. So so they brought their sheep on site, um, gradually bought more sheep. Um, now they have 300 sheep that they bring to site in the spring. They lamb on site. So by July-ish, they have um, 500 or more sheep and lamb grazing on site. Um, they also manage another one of our sites and a, a competitor site as well. And they now have a, a fully sustainable uh, sheep business because of solar and the opportunity that solar provided to them. So on one hand, you know, we may be seeing some um, types of farming that are, are, are maybe seeing a re reduction because of solar, but on the other hand, it also breeds new opportunities as well. So. Um, so that's a great story and Chris and Lindsay, who are our farmers there, they speak very highly of their experience being able to graze uh, around solar. So um, so that's a quick story there. Uh, and again, um, the amount of farmland that that may be used by solar, uh, I mean, solar is a is a pretty efficient use of land when it comes to producing energy. Uh, you know, an acre of solar panels, for example, can drive a Tesla or an electric car roughly a million miles, uh, which is roughly 100 times further than uh, an acre of, of crops that produce biofuels um, might be able to, to drive a car. Um, but regardless, we're still using, you know, we're st we still may be using a, a significant amount of land. So for example, to make 25% of New York State's electricity, we may need to put two to cover two percent of New York State's farmland in in solar panels. So, it's important that we think about what else we can do on the land with solar panels. And and like you mentioned, agrivoltaics is one of those things. So, the the low hanging fruit uh, right now is is grazing, uh, whether it's sheep or pigs or chickens or different things like that. It seems to be the most cost effective way to um, to bring agriculture within solar facilities and it's been quite successful. Um, the numbers we've heard is there's roughly 20,000 acres of of solar uh, being grazed by sheep across the United States currently. Um, there's a lot of research also being done in growing crops around solar panels and for example there's a site in Colorado called Jack Solar Garden and they've been researching and testing various crops growing under solar panels in, in a design much similar to how we design our facilities 
and um, they, they found that celery, uh, for example, in Colorado under their panels, they have four, four times higher yield under solar panels than in the control plot that's not under solar panels. And there's other things like like potatoes that are, are fairly similar, whether in control plot or under panels and um, other things like sugar beets that are maybe uh, produce um, two thirds the yield under solar panel that it would uh, in open environments. Um, so um, so lots of research going to the space. It's very interesting and exciting. Some of the results that we're seeing. Um, but there's a lot more innovation to be done in the space too. And um, you know, our hope is that the solar sector and the farming sector will have uh, very meaningful conversations going forward, trying to figure out you know, how to develop solar so that we can maintain feasible electricity prices, but also uh, provide meaningful opportunities for farmers to grow crops or graze animals uh, within the fence line of, of a facility and, and maybe even other opportunities um, outside the fence line of our facilities. So, uh, so agrivoltaics I see as something being very, very uh, important. Um, and I guess the last point to mention there is, you know, we do follow very strict rules during construction operations and decommissioning to preserve the topsoil on the properties we develop on. Um, typically, there's only uh, a very small percentage, whether it's one, two, five, four, five percent of the land that's actually uh, not vegetated after the solar site is constructed. So, which means, um, you know, most of the solar facility is 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 vegetation uh, under panel, and um, and really, it's a it's a preservation of farmland because when the project is done. All the equipment gets removed and the land can go back into agriculture once again. Um, and over time of operation, the, the land has has likely had an opportunity to uh, renutrify. So the quality of, of that soil uh, should be quite good, if not better than it was um, at the start of, of the project. As we have seen, advancements in renewable energy, such as agrivoltaics, make sustainable development goals much more achievable. With more research and financial investments going into these new technologies and practices, we can make a substantial dent in our carbon footprint.